listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, I'd encourage you in your homes at this point to please turn your Bibles to uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1 and the verse number 1, where it says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's the prayer at the close of that verse. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That prayer you'll find in some form in every one of Paul's epistles. He prays that the believers would know grace and that they would know peace. In some form, it's found at the beginning and the end, uh, with the exception of Hebrews, where it's just found at the end of that epistle. These words are really the Christianized Greek form of the ancient Hebrew greeting. Uh, This term has come from the Old Testament into the New. These greetings, of course, are really a prayer, expressing the burden, the desire, the heart of the apostle for his people. He wants the churches to know grace and to know peace. I say it's a prayer because you will see the form of the words that are used here, that grace and peace, they come from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want you to miss an important point of doctrine here. Before we go any further, you'll see that Paul the Apostle brackets together the Father and the God-man, Jesus Christ. The word from is only used once, both in the original and in the translation that we have before us today, from God and the Lord. And with that sense, we are seeing that this is, this is the oneness of the Godhead, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father, and the blessing of grace and peace comes from the triune God. But this greeting is, I believe, Paul's most common prayer to those he writes to. Now, there are some who tragically dismiss this due to its commonness. They would say this prayer is simply a greeting, a formality with no real significance. It's just a form of address. We must guard our hearts from believing that this prayer at the end of this first verse, that this prayer is simply a passing form of address without sincerity. We should never, ever charge the Apostle Paul with such insincerity of thought. Rather, he's saying grace and peace. He wants the churches to know these these blessings of grace and peace that comes from God. And more importantly, again, of course, we must never charge the Holy Spirit with using words just for the sake of it. Every word in this book is here for a reason for our instruction. And so when we come to the epistles, we should not rush through the first verse so that we get to the good stuff in the future verses. We should take time to meditate upon this prayer. What is Paul praying for here? He's praying for grace and for peace. And so this morning, we're going to look 
at Paul's prayer for grace. And so to begin with, let's look at this subject of the grace of God. Uh, this is essential for the Christian life. Now, before we develop this subject, uh, we should ask the question, who needs the grace of God? Now, to answer that question, we should ask another question, and that is, who does Paul pray for here? Well, we're told, verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians. He's praying for the church, a term of great importance, and not a building, not those who simply attend a building, but in the New Testament, a spiritual group, a spiritual company. Oh yes, that company has a local manifestation there in Thessalonica, but they are the church. We are thinking of people who have been called out of humanity, a people who have been separated, called out of death unto life. Now, if you turn back to Acts chapter 17, you will see the origin of this church in Thessalonica. And we have some details given historically as to how God worked to bring this church to pass. Paul goes there, you have in verse number 2, and for three Sabbath days he reasons with people in the synagogue out of the Scriptures. He's preaching Christ, verse number 2, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed. So here's the origination of a church. The apostle Paul goes, he preaches Christ, and some who heard the word believed. You've got the uh, description of them, of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. Here's a congregation being called out of the world by grace and being united together as a church in Thessalonica. And there is that sense of Paul preaching and then believing that he reflects upon in this first epistle. You will see how they are described. They are described as those who have received the word. Verse number 6 of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, having received the word in much affliction. They've received the word of God. Chapter 2, verse 13 describes that again where it says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Paul came, Paul preached, they heard, they believed it, they took it as the very word of God, and that word of God changed their lives. This church is a company of changed people. And so when Paul describes them in verse 1 of the first chapter, he says they are the church which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Having been called out of the world, they're in union with the triune God. What a tremendous experience this is. We have been saved. We enter into communion with God. We fellowship with the Father and with the Son by the Spirit. And we have this union, one with another, as we are in union with the triune God. And so their changed lives is described in verse number 9 of the, the first chapter as having turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is a genuine group of believers who've been saved by the grace of God. Have you had that experience? Has there been a time in your life when you heard the gospel 
and you receive the gospel, not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God. You hear of Christ dying on the cross, and you confessed your sins, and you ran to Christ. And as you came to Christ with a changed heart, you're brought into fellowship with God. And so remind you, we're asking the question, who needs the grace of God? Well, who's Paul praying for? He's praying for the church of the Thessalonians. He's praying for those who've been saved by grace. And the very simple point is this. All true Christians need this grace. Not one single Christian is left out or exempted from this prayer. And that in turn has an effect on how we understand what he actually prays for them. And so to begin with, as we develop this subject further, I want to think about the constancy of this grace. What's Paul praying for here? Grace be unto you. Well, grace is used by Paul in a number of ways. That, that term, that word is used in a number of ways. From our days in Sabbath school and Sunday school, and we tend to define grace as God's unmerited favor to sinners. And so when we think of grace, we think of grace often prior to or at the moment of our salvation. It's something that's enjoyed by those who are still dead in sin. And undoubtedly, Paul uses the word grace as the foundation or as the source of a sinner's salvation. In Ephesians chapter 2, very famously, by grace are ye saved. That grace out of which the believer is saved, it's God's grace whereby we're saved. Grace is also used to refer to the believer's standing in salvation. Romans 5, 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. We stand in God's favor. We stand in the fellowship of God's mercy. Grace is also used by Paul to refer to certain gifts or graces a believer might have. But my suggestion to you, in fact, my assertion, is that those are not the things that Paul is referring to here in this prayer. I don't believe he's referring to those gifts which are not common to all the saints. Every saint will have various gifts. This is a general prayer for all of the saints. Nor is Paul referring to that love and fever which bestows salvation. For this is a prayer for believers. For those who've already known that grace whereby they were saved. You see, this, this word grace is a broad word. It's inclusive of all the blessings that God bestows upon his children. But the particular emphasis here, the particular thought here, is on the grace of God as a sustaining power, as a strengthening power, as a gift which God gives his children to enable them to press on and endure no matter their situation. I want to show you one example of how grace is used in this sense by the Apostle Paul in his writings. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, sorry, chapter 15, and the verse number 10, where Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace was not bestowed upon me in vain. Now here, of course, Paul is referring to that saving grace. He was a wicked persecutor of the church, verse 9. But by the grace of God, he was converted, he was changed, Christ appeared to him, and he's a changed person. That's the grace of God and his salvation. 
And he says that grace was not empty. It was not worthless. It was a grace that produced labor. Verse 10 again, But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. He enjoyed grace that led him to Christ, and the grace that led him to Christ he continued to enjoy as he walked with the Lord. As he labored for Christ, he labored by the grace of God. Oh, the hymn writers understood this. I think of the hymn of Annie Johnson Flint, where she wrote, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials, his multiplied peace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. We think of that glorious hymn, Amazing Grace. Newton, of course, reflecting upon the grace that saves. But in the third verse, he says, "'Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." And so the grace that is prayed for here is the gift of God to the believer, sustaining them, strengthening them, enabling them to endure. Hence, I call it the constancy of grace. The grace whereby we are saved is a grace that continues all our days. We know that grace each and every day of our walk with the Lord. This grace is constant in the believer's experience. It's a grace that leads us to Christ, and it's a grace that keeps us in Christ. And so we thought about the constancy of grace. In the second place, I want to think about the necessity of this grace Paul is praying here out of the conviction. And that is that all believers stand in need of God's grace. It's a prayer for all, and none are excluded. Now, I could be wrong here, but it has, I believe, been my experience that young believers are very conscious of their need of God's grace. They come to Christ, and they're very aware of their sin. They're very aware of the struggles they have to walk with God, and they realize, I need the grace of God. I've also been conscious that those towards the end of their lives are also very aware of their need for God's grace. They've walked for many years, and they reflect back upon their lives, and they confess with Newton, Grace has brought me safe thus far, and only grace will lead me home. But there is a danger in the Christian life of middle years complacency. As people reach the middle part of their Christian experience, they can become content. They can become quite complacent regarding their spiritual maturity. They know much more doctrinally than they did when they were first saved. They fought battles of sin and have known some degree of victory. And so for a season, they become somewhat complacent regarding the need of God's grace. I want to reinforce and remind each and every one of you, we all need God's grace each and every day, each moment of every day. We all stand in need of grace. You see, for some, there is the dangerous doctrine whereby they believe they are saved by grace, but kept by their works. Now, of course, don't misunderstand this. We've seen already in the experience of the Thessalonians that when there is faith, there is work. 
Paul remembers their work of faith. Those who are born again, those who are saved by grace, are God's workmanship. But the point we must always remember is that those works are not done in our own strength. Those works are works by grace. And so not only are we saved by grace, we are kept by grace and we work by grace. Without God's grace, we are nothing, we will be nothing, and we will do nothing. We need the grace of God. We need God's grace to be evangelistic. We need God's grace for communion with God. We need God's grace to battle with sin and temptation. All of these functions, they are, they are performed by faith. They're performed by the Spirit, and therefore they are only performed by grace. You see, turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And here you will see that Paul highlights that it is only by God's grace that we will do any good work. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 8, where he says, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you. Here again, he's speaking to a Christian church. He's speaking to people who have come to know the grace whereby they were saved. But he does not stop talking of grace the minute they believe. Those who believe, he continues to talk to them about their need of grace. And he encourages them. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. It is by God's grace that we can do those works that are pleasing in God's sight. We have the tendency, perhaps, uh, to look across our churches and to isolate people and say, oh, they need God's grace. Look at what they're going through. Look at the trials they face. Clearly, they need God's grace. Let me tell you, we all need God's grace. Not one Christian can say they've arrived. Not one Christian can say that they stand outside the need of God's grace. I take the prayer of David to be a good prayer to pray. Psalm 105, verse 4, Seek the Lord and His strength. So that's something about the constancy of grace and the necessity of this grace. What about its availability? Paul is praying out of the conviction that he knows when he prays to God for grace that that grace is available. Of course, our minds must go to Hebrews chapter 4. Turn there, please. It's a, a favorite text of so many. But perhaps today you can read it and you'll read it with a sense of your need of God's grace. Hebrews chapter 4 and the verse number 16. Let us therefore come boldly Unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here Paul again is emphasizing that the believers, they will stand in need of grace. And that grace is available from the very throne of grace. Now when you study that text very carefully, you will note in verse 16, there is that word, therefore. And that therefore refers back to the previous verses. Verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. All grace is available to us. Because Christ has ascended 
with the marks of crucifixion on his body. He's ascended to the right hand of God. He is one who knows our needs and therefore will give us the grace that we need, the suitable grace at the right time to help us in our times of need. It's a grace that comes from Christ in virtue of Calvary. You see, dear believer, this grace is unmerited. And yet we can expect it. Like all of God's grace, we do not deserve the grace that comes from Christ. But though it is unmerited, we can expect it because Christ has secured it. And as Christ has secured that grace, he then supplies it freely. He supplies it in the abundance of his riches, the riches of his grace. And so if you stand, as we all do at all times and time of need, We can be encouraged that in that time of need, we have Christ who is willing to make his grace available to us. In finishing this, think about the sufficiency of this grace. And of course, here we're thinking of Paul's words or Christ's words to Paul, actually, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And here again, we see a very helpful definition of this grace that is required following our conversion. My grace is sufficient for thee. And using grace and strength synonymously, the Lord says, My grace is sufficient, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here is this grace. Grace that is strengthening grace. Grace that sustains us. Grace that enables us to endure. So that when we are weak, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 12, when we are weak, then we're strong. It is by God's grace that we endure, and God's grace is sufficient for every believer at every time of need. God's grace will never, ever fail us. It's impossible for God's grace to let us down. It's impossible for the believer, for the true believer, to stand in need and God to leave us in our need. Now, these are troubling times. These are times that we're all being impacted in very real ways by our present situation. And at this time, we can still have the assurance that God's grace is sufficient for us in this time of need. You see, as we consider the benefits of trusting in God's grace, we will be encouraged to walk with God. What I'm telling you today is that God's grace will be available and sufficient for you tomorrow. We do not know what a day may bring forth. The year 2020 has made that very, very clear to us all. We cannot boast about our plans and our purposes for the future. And so therefore, not knowing what is going to happen, we must have the abiding confidence that God's grace will be available for us each and every day. And such belief in God's tomorrow grace is what will help us in our work with God. It will help us to fight discouragement. Psalm 42, and the psalmist describes discouragement. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? And in that experience, in that sorrow, he looks to God and he says in verse 8 of Psalm 42, yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. That's a reference to grace. Grace. 
In his darkness, in his discouragement, he will know God's loving kindness. Confidence that God's grace will be sufficient and he will yet still praise the Lord. You think of how this grace, it helps us in our discontentment. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 and the verse number 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. And I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Now here, Hebrews chapter 13, the apostle is dealing with the trouble that may come as they walk with God. They may lose things. They may lose possessions. They may lose their health. They may lose their livelihood. And yet he says, let your conversation be without covetousness. And the reason they can fight discontentment is the knowledge of God's tomorrow grace. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my sustaining grace. Therefore, I can defeat, I can defeat discontentment. We can also use this tomorrow grace to defeat disobedience. Romans chapter 6 and the verse number 14. Paul says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. And so the believer is presently in the enjoyment of the grace of God. So that, Romans chapter 8, verse 13, If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if through the Spirit ye mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And we can defeat the sins of the flesh because of our confidence of God's tomorrow grace. Those are just some examples of how God's grace is sufficient for the believer in every time of need. Grace that is constant. Grace that is needful. Grace that is available through Christ. And praise God, grace that is sufficient no matter what tomorrow we bring. For wherever the believer is tomorrow, God's grace will be there waiting for them. What a confidence we have to walk with God in difficult times. And dear unsaved soul, I encourage you, get to Christ. For in Christ there is the resources you need to walk in this world. In Christ there is every resource, every grace that will enable you to walk with God and enter glory at the last. May God be pleased to bless his word to your souls today. In Jesus' name. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.